Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, Preventing Serious Injuries and Fatalities, sponsored by Aveda. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor at Safety and Health Magazine, and I am moderating today's session. I want to thank you all for joining us. We're going to start the presentation in a couple minutes, but first I want to go over some preliminary items. The views of today's speaker and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the magazine or council endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we will conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply type it in the text box in the lower left-hand corner of your screen and click the button for Submit Question. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the Q&A to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. Any unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's speaker. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, and I'll let you know more about that after this presentation. This webcast is archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events. If you'd like to download the slides from today's presentation, please go to the resources widget at the bottom of your screen. And finally, if you need basic troubleshooting information, click the Help button. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speaker today is Tom Sisich, a strategic advisor for Aveda and president of the TFC and Associates consulting firm. During his illustrious career, Tom has served as president of both the American Society of Safety Professionals and the Board of Certified Safety Professionals. He was a vice president of EHS Global Business Support at GlaxoSmithKline and held additional safety management positions at IBM and Allied Chemical. Tom is also an ASSP Fellow, that organization's highest honor, a certified industrial hygienist, and a certified safety professional. Tom, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Great. Thank you, Alan. I appreciate that kind introduction, and good afternoon, everyone. Uh, since I'm uh, coming from Raleigh, North Carolina, where I live, it's, it is indeed the afternoon. I realize that some of you are still mid-morning. Um, but welcome to our session today on preventing serious injuries and fatalities. And what I, I hope to accomplish is to, is to give an outline of, of where this, um, uh, I won't say new since it's uh, been around now, some of the research findings are five, eight, nine years old, but certainly an area that continues to evolve in terms of importance to us as uh, safety and health professionals. Uh, I'll describe the scenario, and, and I think this, this really puts the issue of uh, serious injuries and fatalities into perspective. Um, how could this happen? And the scenario is four months ago, we celebrated our safety success. Our total injury rates were lower than ever. Our leaders got bonuses. This quarter, we had a fatal injury and a severe burn. Our safety leaders are perplexed and our plant manager and his boss are angry. Um, this is not a scenario that necessarily describes a bad company. Um, one of the interesting uh, phenomena associated with serious injuries and fatalities is that companies with world-class performance, world-class safety management systems uh, out of nowhere suffer a, a serious injury uh, or fatality uh, even though other safety and health metrics they might have uh, are outstanding. So how is this occurring? How does this scenario develop? Um, and I think what we're doing is, is you know, in the last uh, five, ten years, we're transforming uh, how we manage safety. Uh, and I think, you know, we've, we have been, in a sense, mired in the past in some ways. You know, there are certainly traditional aspects of how we manage safety that are applicable today, certainly, but um, we're, we're finding some gaps in, in how these traditional methods work. Uh, you know, the issue of, of you know, doing more inspections, uh, you know, the old tell employees to be more careful because we know that uh, from, from some, you know, historically that most of the accidents occur from unsafe behaviors, right? Uh, and then, obviously, we need to give more training. This is some of our traditional thinking. 
Um, to put it graphically, if you will, what were we taught? Um, well, uh, in the area of uh, we've been taught Bird's Triangle or uh, Heinrich's Triangle. Heinrich in 1931, Bird probably revised it in the late 50s uh, uh, to mid to late 60s. And it's um, for one major injury, there are there are 29 minor and 300 near miss or some ratio close to that. Uh, we were also taught that 80% of unsafe that that uh, injuries were as a result of unsafe actions of employees. And what we're finding out today is that um, you know these were were put together uh, with the data that was available. 80, 90 years ago, but uh, we're finding that these aren't effective uh, and certainly don't describe uh, accident and injury prevention in today's workplaces. Um, we're going to focus primarily on, on the, the Heinrich Triangle initially, and uh, I, I think most people understand you have a serious injury and then there's you know a certain number of minor injuries and a certain number of incidents. Um, and and traditionally, the approach was um, if you reduce, in this particular slide, uh, if you tackle the 300 and you reduce that by 75%, say, pick a number, then uh, you'd have a 75% reduction of minor injuries and lower the probability uh, of, a, of a serious injury by, uh, you know, uh, uh, a factor of, uh, you know, 0.75. So, um, what though is is actually going on, and does this accurately describe what happens with respect to serious injuries and fatalities? Um, so let's look at some data and and take a look at what the data says with respect to um, how predictive Heinrich's triangle really is, particularly in the area of serious injuries and fatalities. Uh, a couple quick definitions. We talk about serious injuries and fatalities. I mean, these are, um, um, you know, people getting killed. That's easy to measure. We understand what that means. Uh, but also life-threatening injuries or illnesses uh, or life-altering injuries or illnesses. And a couple quick definitions. Uh, types of life-threatening would be serious lacerations resulting in uh, significant loss of, of blood, uh, brain, spinal cord, uh, cardio injuries uh, from, say, uh, um, uh, electrical exposures, chest and abdominal injuries, serious burns. These are, these are injuries that could easily have uh, resulted in a fatality. Uh, likewise, um, these are uh, life-altering events, head, head injuries, loss of sight, paralysis, amputation, serious burns, again. Um, and, and let me mention one thing, because I'll cover it later, but just in case, for whatever reason, I overlook it. When we talk about managing SIFs, it's not just saying, um, you know, counting these events and saying we, we have to reduce these numbers. It's very important to recognize it's also the, the incidents that could have resulted in the serious injuries and fatalities. Uh, ultimately, we get more of those, and as a result, more opportunities to recognize where the, the risks are uh, for a serious injury and fatality to occur. But let's look at the data. Uh, I'm gonna start out with um, uh, looking at injury and fatality data, and this is in a generic sense. So I'm not gonna throw any real numbers up here right away. I will in a, in a few minutes. So uh, if we chart um, uh, injury rates versus years, um, essentially over, and you could argue since the beginning of OSHA, Total injuries have been coming down and coming down significantly. Um, and, and this is true both from a, a, a BLS standpoint, a Bureau of Labor Statistics. Uh, it's true also for, for organizations that have invested in safety and health management programs um, you know, through, through continuous improvement processes. Uh, the good news is that total injuries across the board, um, the have a significant downward trend. But if we look at serious injuries and fatalities, a subset of total injuries, in general, and, and this holds true for government uh, data, um, but also in, in the studies of, of uh, businesses that have been done, and, and granted, the sample size is fairly small, but 
what the data is showing is that in general, serious injuries and fatalities for the most part are coming down also, but not as fast as total injuries. And in fact, it, in some data analysis, uh, we actually see that it's flattening out. So let me superimpose. Now, this, is, this slide is a generic, but let's use OSHA data. And, and what are we seeing with respect to OSHA data? Well, if we look at OSHA, sorry, if we look at non-fatal workplace injuries in, in the USA, and we go back to 2003, that's the year OSHA made a major record-keeping change. So, you know, data prior to 2003 is not as uh, comparable, not as consistently comparable, let's put it that way, um, with data after 2003. So if we, if we plot um, total case in, in, incidents or total case injuries, uh, injury rate for that period, you'll notice that it's gone from 5.0 to 2.9. That, that's a significant reduction, um, uh, almost half over that uh, was it 13, 14, 15 year period. So um, th that's good news, uh, a significant reduction. Uh, however, if we look at fatalities, um, and this goes back to 2006, and I'm really showing the red line, the, the blue line and the green line, um, talk about all workers versus self-employed, but if we if we aggregate that, you'll notice that the the red line uh, from 2006 to 2016, um, certainly in the last uh, eight nine years of that, is relatively flat. So even though we're experiencing a significant reduction in total injuries, uh, and, and with respect to fatalities. Uh, it's certainly um, the, certainly not a downward trend that, uh, as safety and health professionals, we would hope and, and want to see. Now, if I superimpose both of those charts, now these are different scales, but just to say the black line is the uh, total, uh, total case incident rate uh, uh, since 1993. The red line is the fatalities. And you'll see that the slopes are significantly different. And, and that's important because what that tells us, and I'm going to jump ahead to the next slide, is um, in, if, if we were, if we were um, getting the same reduction in the rate of serious injuries and fatalities as it were total injuries, uh, the rate, uh, the, the slope of the curve would be the same. And the fact that it's not the same um, it's telling us that um, a reduction in all injuries uh, at, say, at a facility does not necessarily produce the equivalent reduction in the number of fatal and serious injuries. If Heinrich was right, those two slopes would be the same. And we see from the data that they're not. So what's going on? And what we found, and, and I'm, I'm uh, quoting some research from uh, uh, Tom Krauss here, is that the traditional safety triangle is not predictive of serious injuries and fatalities. Uh, the reason for that is not all uh, injuries have serious injury and fatality potential. In other words, not every incident or injury toward the bottom of the triangle is going to result in a fatality. It's not going to happen. You know, you might get a, you know, a lacerated finger, but um, uh, in, in terms of that being an event uh, that kills someone, um, that's not where the, the serious injuries fatalities are occurring. So, um, and so as a result, a reduction in injuries at the bottom of the triangle does not correspond to an equivalent reduction in serious injuries and fatalities. And in Krauss's study, uh, he found that of of in, in across several industries of 300 sampled injuries, only 64 um, uh, injuries had the potential or 21% of the total cases at the bottom uh, had the potential to result in serious injuries and fatalities. And, you know, just a quick look ahead, kind of a bottom line on this, it's going to say if, if you know that um, uh, not all the injury reduction activities at the bottom will result in a reduction of serious injuries and fatalities at the top. Where are you going to put your resources? Where are you going to prioritize 
and what are the types of injury, what type of events are you really going to scrutinize to determine, um, you know, what the risks are, and do those risks have the possibility of, of yielding a high degree of severity, which results in a serious injury or fatality. Um, so the, the, uh, the finding, if you will, just to, to state it clearly from Krauss, is that injuries of different severity have different underlying causes. Reducing injuries require, reducing serious injuries requires a different strategy than reducing minor injuries. Um, I'm going to throw a quick definition, and that's the definition of a precursor, which is a reasonably detectable event, condition, or action that serves as a warning sign of an, of an event. So precursor are um, activities or events that occur that might give us an indication of the potential of a more serious, it's a warning sign or, or an activity that um, could be, um, uh, could yield a more serious, uh, could yield a serious outcome. Um, so some new thinking about SIFs, and, and just uh, some of this is summary, but um, all minor injuries are not the same. Uh, in other words, a subset of low severity injuries are associated only a subset of low severity injuries are associated with precursors that could lead to serious injuries and fatalities. In other words, somebody could get a, a minor injury, and if you look at it on a log, you might say, oh, you know, Joe Blow uh, um, cut their finger. Um, the fact is they, they may have uh, just missed getting it cut off in a, in a you know, a punch press. So um, it, there are precursors, though, certain types of events, that could lead to serious injuries and fatalities, and it's these precursors that we want to be aware of, and I'm going to share those with you before we, we finish and actually go through a, case, a quick case study. Um, uh, the second point, differing, differing severities um, have differing underlying causes. Um, reducing serious injuries and fatalities requires a different strategy than just reducing minor injuries. We have, we have to, uh, to understand that. And, and a big part of the whole SIF reduction is understanding. And first, you know, accepting at our, from our standpoint as safety and health professionals that this is, you know, this is what the data is showing, but then communicate that to our operational uh, and, and business leaders so they understand um, what's important? I, I can think back to my chemical industry days, you know, many, many years ago, and we had a very um, um, proactive plant manager, very aggressive in the area of safety. Um, but you know, he would review every morning, every first aid case that occurred in the facility, and he said, you know, our our objection, our objective is going to be to reduce all our hand and injuries by a certain amount by, uh, uh, you know, for the next six months. So for six months, that particular chemical plant, all we focused on were hand and finger injuries. And, and in retrospect, I look back now, and what I know about as a young professional, what I know about managing risk and assessing risk, uh, for good, goodness sake, it was, it was a chemical plant, a continuous process chemical plant with high pressure, high temperature, um, you know, uh, highly hazardous materials, and, um, you know, does that say that we're not concerned about hand and finger injuries and first aid cases? Sure we are. We want to understand what they are and learn from them. But that's, in retrospect, that's not where I would put my priorities. Um, I, I would be looking for the big event that, where somebody's going to get seriously injured or, or killed. Um, so uh, the strategy for reducing serious injuries, we, we should look at this precursor data. Uh, and understand, you know, what it is and, and use that in our risk assessments uh, to recognize these are, you know, the severity of potential outcomes of events that have certain precursors uh, uh, have a higher probability of being uh, severe. Um, so, again, um, some of this is I'm, I'm uh, repeating. So, um, let me just, uh, I'll probably just glance over this. this um, I, again, the fifth one, the strategy, the strategy for reduce, reducing serious injuries and fatalities requires a different strategy for reducing less serious injuries. The reduction of hand and fingers injuries at the chemical plant I described um, wasn't going to keep, um, you know, a, a reactor vessel from blowing up 
uh, or somebody suffering a major um, uh, injury in a line-breaking event. Um, and then the, the last bullet there is conditions known to be associated with serious injuries should be examined and the appropriate controls applied to minimize risk. And that's kind of the theme that um, is, is being developed. How do you reduce serious injuries and fatalities? Recognize there's multiple layers of control. Generally, a serious injury and fatality doesn't have one particular uh, underlying cause. There's a series. And um, there's, there's normally ample opportunity to uh, block the chain that's occurring. Um, now, this is where we start getting into some of the meat. Um, from uh, some of the research studies, these are examples of the high-consequence precursors. Um, where usual, uh, sorry, where unusual and non-routine work occurs uh, during non-production activities, where sources of high energy are present during construction and demolition operations, where site and contractor personnel are intermixed during upset conditions, during periods of change, working on elevated surfaces, working subject to critical deadlines, emergency conditions, working with high hazard substances. Um, from the, the, the studies that have been done, and, and I think most of us would understand, each of these individual precursors bring uh, different risks uh, to, um, uh, to the operation. And um, again, where these precursors exist, these are many times result in events that could have resulted in a serious injury and fatality or did result in a serious injury or fatality. Um, how do we reduce the risk of, of a serious injury fatality? First, understand the risks. Um, you know, understand what those precursors are uh, and whether or not we have operations that are exposed to those precursors. So I think the first bullet, the first level is on us as safety and health professionals that, that we're thinking um, about focusing, you know, where our, our real risks are, where are people going to get seriously injured, and understanding what the precursors are that will lead to those. Um, the second is, is um, um, making sure management understands that, that they're aware of the SIF causes. And, um, and uh, there, there have been uh, a couple of very high-profile cases where organizations were, were giving out safety awards because their total case injury, injury rate was, um, incident rate rather, was, was um, uh, world-class. I mean, literally. Uh, the number was approaching zero, um, and management looked solely at that number and didn't recognize that there were a number of SIF exposures. Um, the third area of reducing SIF is understand the limitations of human and organizational performances. The, the whole emerging area of, of HOP um, you know, tells us that um, you know, people make mistakes. We all make mistakes. And if we design a system that um, relies solely on a person not making a mistake, uh, it's, it's very likely that system is going to fail. And you know, wherever there's a single point of failure, there's there's a there's a huge risk in that. Um, if you're following the the Boeing 737 Max, at least some of the reports that I've read is there was an angle of attack indicator, uh, one of them on the plane, and it's very likely, and, and you know, certainly the investigation's ongoing, that it could have been a single point failure that. Had cascaded to a, a number of events that, that resulted in a, a, in a catastrophe. Well, again, think of the human in many cases as a person in the system, and you know if they have a failure, if they have a bad day, if uh, you know there, there's a hundred things or a hundred reasons why a person might take a particular action, you know, at, and one of them is as simple as they made a mistake. Um, could that be the source of, of, a, of a broader system failure that results in a serious injury and fatality? And, and where the, the answer to that is yes, if a, if a person could make a mistake that re results in a serious injury or fatality, then uh, by all means, uh, the way to, to help reduce that risk is to implement a, a series of controls 
um, help lower that risk. I'm going to say just a little more about that. Um, so um, uh, what we find is in many cases, and it goes back to my initial scenario, um, stiff risks are underestimated. Uh, a long history of injury-free performance is no guarantee that SIF risks are eliminated or controlled. I mean, you've all heard that, you know, hey, I've done this for 10 years, nothing's ever happened. Um, organizations become desensitized to faint warning signs. Um, uh, you'll hear some people talk about this as signals, that there are, there are many signals that something is about to go wrong, but if there's so much background noise in the organization, those faint warning signs or, or signals may not get picked up. Um, Tom Krauss um, advocates that cognitive bias can contribute to significantly underestimating the risk of low probability, high severity event. Um, we are really good in the safe, as safety professionals in saying what's the worst thing that could happen in a particular operation. Uh, you know, if I asked you, you know, you pick the operational organization, I said, what's the worst thing that could happen there? you're probably going to nail it pretty close. But where it starts breaking down, and this is the basis of risk assessment, is, is when we start trying to figure out what's the probability. And I say, oh, it's really, really low. But um, is that truly the case? And then finally, uh, another area for, for risks uh, uh, underestimating is standardization of deviation. Standardization of variances are the same thing, essentially. And that's that, you know, um, we made a small change in, in the process. Um, yeah, we did it one time because, you know, we, we, we took to all the appropriate safety precautions um, and we took, you know, we took, uh, made a change uh, for one time, nothing happened, uh, did it again the next time, nothing happened. Sooner or later, that becomes uh, the, the way of doing business. And uh, there could be risks built into that. You know, both of the, um, uh, the shuttle uh, the, um, uh, the loss of, of, the, of the shuttles, the Challenger and the Columbian, w Columbia were both results of standardization deviation. Uh, both uh, accidents were understood that they were possibilities, uh, and uh, because nothing had happened in the past, uh, uh, they went ahead with those missions. Um, I use this as a slide only because it's simple, and, and uh, I apologize for my lack of creative uh, PowerPoint skills. Um, but sometimes non-injury incidents are not always recognized as SIF potential. Uh, I'll ask you, what's the difference between scenario one, scenario two, and scenario three? Uh, well, in scenario one, the only loss is a you know, banged up pipe wrench. Uh, scenario two, probably a broken shoulder, uh, but probably not gonna kill the person, so that's a serious injury. Scenario three, possibly somebody getting killed, even with a hard hat on. And yet, um, all three of these, from the standpoint of potential for serious injury and fatality, they're all the same. Each one of those incidents, it doesn't matter what the outcome is, should have been investigated as if it were a serious, or in, serious injury or fatality. In other words, they should all be investigated as if uh, the person actually got hit in the head and killed by the pipe wrench. And that's important. That's the faint signals we're talking about for serious injuries and fatalities. Um, we have far more data um, uh, in our organizations about uh, incidents and uh, events that are outside the norm that um, tell us that we have exposures to serious injuries and fatalities. And when those, when those events occur, they should be investigated with the same rigor um, and thoroughness as if somebody was, was killed. Um, as I said earlier, uh, we talked about Krauss and um, uh, his, uh, he's a behavioral um, uh, uh, psychologist. Uh, and his comment is, while any single decision may be insignificant by itself, a series of small decisions can create a path to disaster. And uh, that's the issue of cognitive bias that um, you know, we, we have we developed certain patterns of how we think. And you know, again, as simple as nothing's ever happened. I've not heard of anything happening in our industry doing this particular operation, um, so it must be okay. 
whereas uh, it might actually have a very low probability of happening, but it, the probability is, is not zero. And as a result, we need to focus on identifying and, and looking at higher level controls. Um, which leads me to my last slide in this, this series is ultimately um, the way to look at, at reduction of serious injury and fatalities is look at our hierarchy of controls. What are we doing to eliminate the risk? And by the way, I, I included ISO 45001, uh, the, the section of 45001, which refers to uh, the use of hierarchy of controls as a way of, um, as, as the, the preferred way of reducing um, uh, serious uh, risks in the organization. And essentially what the hierarchy of control is, to the extent possible, we, we look to, to eliminate the risk or substitute um, uh, a, a lower level risk. The, traditionally, the, the lower we are on the triangle, the easier they are to implement, uh, such as PPE, administrative controls would be a form of training, um, but also they tend to be uh, less effective uh, in um, their overall uh, reduction of risk. And that's not to say that they shouldn't be part of uh, your, your SIF uh, risk reduction efforts. Certainly, um, you know, we're never going to eliminate PPE and administrative controls, and we have to accept they are a means of, of control but by themselves, they generally are not as effective as reducing the risks um, associated with um, those events that, that can lead to um, uh, serious injuries and fatalities. Um, I have another chart that I, that I show that gives a little more detail. I know some of you probably, if you're welcome to, to download this presentation, give you an example of what some administrative controls, procedures, trainings, training, and then some, what some of the higher level controls consist of. Um, what I'd like to do is in, in closing out, I'd like to go through a case study to give some examples of you know, what precursors can result in serious injuries and fatalities. And let me just give a caveat. Uh, I use this, this uh, case uh, for two reasons. Number one, um, it was a, an event that occurred about 10 miles from where I live. So um, I got a lot of, of, I saw a lot of news coverage and, and there's a clip from the chemical safety board that talks about the event. Um, you know, I'm the first one to accept that, that um, bad things can happen to good companies. So it's not a criticism of, of ConAgra. Uh, certainly in the companies I've worked for, we've had bad events and, and you know, so, uh, again, I'm, I'm not trying to, to pick on anybody, but use it as a, as a training opportunity that we can all benefit from. Uh, the facility in question uh, uh, was in Garner, North Carolina, and manufactured Slim Jim's primary um, product at the facility, not particularly a hazardous product. Uh, uh, so the product itself uh, wasn't, you know, isn't something, it's not like you're, in, you know, uh, you know, in a chemical facility where your, you know, your final product is, is uh, you know, highly flammable. Um, the, just some of the, the photos um, of, of this facility, uh, there were uh, 900 people at the facility uh, the day of the event. You can see that the, the roof collapsed. Um, and um, uh, there were a number of, of people who were killed and, and seriously injured. Uh, I'm going to show a video clip. It's about three minutes, and then we'll come back, and um, um, I'll go through a quick checklist, and you can pick out how many serious injury events, uh, how many pre precursors there were. Industrial water heater, manufactured by Energy Systems Analysts, or ESA. So, prior to the accident. The accident at ConAgra Foods Slim Jim production plant occurred during the installation and commissioning of a new gas-fired industrial water heater manufactured by Energy Systems Analysts, or ESA. Several days prior to the accident, a new steel gas...
attaching a temporary hose to the supply pipe. ConAgra workers vented the flammable gas directly outdoors. However, they did not purge the air from the new steel pipe leading to the water. On the day of the accident, an ESA worker was attempting to remove air from this new piping prior to lighting the heater. But ConAgra did not always require piping to be purged outdoors. The gas supply valve on the roof was opened. Then the ESA worker opened a valve near the water heater, allowing gases to escape through an opening in the pipe. However, he was unable to light the heater and evidently concluded that this was caused by air remaining in the pipe. So he continued venting the pipe intermittently into the utility room over two and one half hours. But the air had left the pipe and invisible natural gas began entering the room. No one used combustible gas detectors to monitor the atmosphere. Instead, workers used an unreliable practice they trusted their sense of smell to warn them of the presence of natural gas. They were unaware that the gas had filled up to a dangerous level inside the building. Shortly before 11.30 a.m., the natural gas found one of several potential ignition sources, perhaps an electrical device, and ignited, causing a catastrophic explosion. The building construction included prefabricated concrete roofing slabs known as double T's, weighing about 12 tons each. Many of these double T's came crashing down to the floor more than 20 feet below, injuring traffic workers. More than half of the roof either collapsed or was severely damaged. Four workers. More than half of the roof either collapsed or was severely damaged. Four people were killed, including the ESA employee, who died due to burn injuries over five months later. And if we were doing a, based on what we know, on the material we've covered in our short time together, if we look at at precursors of SIFs. And uh, what I've done is put a little checklist up here that I use I, uh, when I do risk assessments. Um, I always I do a hazard review first and identify uh, uh, hazards in a facility. And I've added, in addition to a list of looking for hazards, I've also included a, a list of um, potential hazards, uh, hazardous activities uh, with serious and lost serious loss potential. So I actually look at, uh, at the potential for SIF along with uh, hazards at a, physical hazards uh, when doing a risk assessment. Um, but let's just go down the list here real quick and, and look and compare that to the, um, to the case you just saw. Uh, the work being performed that is unusual or non-routine was installed, being installed during work hours, but uh, the installation certainly wasn't routine. Situations where upset conditions are possible. Uh, it was done during the middle of a work shift uh, in the middle of the facility. Uh, work performed is non-production activity. Uh, you can put a check by that one. High sources of energy are present. You can put a check. Construction and or dem demolition is occurring. Check. Contractors and non-company personnel are present. Check. Um, Work on elevated surfaces, check. Now, that didn't result in a, in a fatality in this particular case, but there was work that both company employees and the contractor were doing on the roof. And then work subject to critical deadlines and emergency conditions. Uh, what we know, I wouldn't check this, but it could have been that uh, the, uh, the, the, the contractor was under, under time pressure to get the water heater installed. We don't know that from the video clip, but it's possible. So the, one of the, I guess the message I'd like to, to leave you with as we get close to the end here is um, include the precursors. These are all precursors of serious injuries and fatalities and recognize what, they are, what these are. And when you do risk assessments or when you do um, root cause analysis of incidents that have occurred, 
determine whether these precursors exist, and if so, what controls are being used to um, either eliminate the risk to, by either lowering the probability that the event occurs or reducing the severity of the event uh, in, in the, if, it does, uh, if the event does occur. So I think that's really a key part of when we thought about eliminating um, the uh, potential for serious injury and fatality is recognize what the precursors are that ultimately can lead to um, those types of, of events. So, um, and, and unfortunately, the, the, the clip we just showed, um, uh, that particular facility um, never reopened. Um, in addition to the four people that were killed and, and dozens that were, um, that were injured, some seriously, um, the, the 900 people eventually, uh, they, all, they, they never returned to work, um, which is another sad outcome of, um, of, of that particular event. So I, I hope you, you found that case useful in trying to illustrate what the points are. And, and then the last slide, I'll just um, summarize once again. I, I showed this uh, before, but you know, how do we reduce the risk? Well, number one is understand what those risks are. What, what are those precursors? Um, and, and I've tried to, to give you a list of some. Certainly a lot of this is, is online. You can Google serious injuries and fatalities. The studies I referred to are all there. Uh, interestingly, in the, um, I believe it's the May issue of Professional Safety, just the, the last issue of uh, ASFP's journal, there's an article, a, a, a fairly long study, mathematical analysis of saying was Heinrich right or not in, in his analysis. And for the most part, I think it backs up what uh, some, of the, some of the more um, uh, hands-on studies have shown. So first step is understand the SIF risks. Um, number two is make sure that the people that, um, you, know, the, you know, your customers uh, at your facilities understand this also, because this is a change. Uh, you know, in the past, you know, whether, whether we've been effective or whether they understand that, you know, reducing uh, the, the frequency also reduces the severity. In other words, if we reduce our total case incident rate, we reduce our risks. And, you know, certainly to, to a small degree, that's true. Maybe even a, a large degree, that's true. But um, it doesn't necessarily bring about the same amount of risk reduction in those events that can lead to serious injuries and fatalities. Um, another is the third is understand the limitations of human performance. Uh, if the system is, is set up so that if somebody makes a mistake, and we all make them, uh, that, the, that the system will fail or uh, the, the event that ultimately leads to a SIF will be initiated. So understand that, and, and if human, if, if so much of that, if so much of the safeguards rely solely on human performance, um, you really need to, to look at what can we do to put in a high, higher level of controls, which of course is point four, that uh, one way to reduce that risk of, of um, uh, workers making mistakes, which they will do, uh, is to put other safeguards in the system um, that will capture that. So uh, with that, um, I think we're trying to keep this to 45 minutes and just pretty much on time. Uh, I know there's a, there's a, people have been sending in questions. So I'm going to turn it back to uh, Alan, our moderator, and he's going to, uh, to the extent that we have time, um, uh, present some questions. All right, thank you, Tom, for your excellent insights and expertise. Uh, before we start the q and I want to remind everyone of the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. The survey should be appearing on your screen now. Your input is important because it will help us improve our future webcasts. If you do not see the evaluation survey on your screen, please turn off your pop-up blocker. You may also access the survey by clicking the survey button near the lower right part of your screen. And as a reminder, to ask a question, just simply type it in the uh, text box in the lower left-hand corner and uh, click the button for Submit Question. Okay, let's get to some questions now. So what are the most effective controls to prevent SIF-type events from occurring? Um, well, I mean, it, it really depends on um, what, the, uh, uh, you know, what the particular precursor is. 
Um, I mean, we could go back to the case study we just looked at. And once you identify what those precursors are, um, then um, you, know, you prepare a risk assessment, which addresses what some of those controls might be. For instance, um, that particular operation, uh, installing that water heater, um, a natural gas water heater, was done um, during normal working hours. Uh, it was a three-shift plant, so there weren't 900 people present. But you know, first shift operation, probably you know, uh, you know, two-thirds of the people, or certainly uh, half the people. So you you probably had you know four or five hundred people present with this particular operation occurring uh, with potential large amount of um, natural gas that could build up, even even if had they vented the 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 unit properly. Um, to the outside, I mean, you could argue that, you know, perhaps, you know, there was a, there was a, a, a leaking flange or, a, you know, a pipe that had a leak in it. Um, so the, the control would be, you know, essentially, you know, uh, eliminate the, the, the exposure. In other words, you do it during off hours, do it during night when there's very few people present. I mean, in, in the event the worst event occurs... Um, you know, the, the, the ultimate loss of life certainly would be far less. So um, essentially, it, it involves looking at what, what, what are the precursors and then, you know, what's the probability and what's the risk of those precursors and then developing some type of control that's going to reduce the probability, either the probability or the, or the severity or both. Our next question, what is the best way to identify a list of SIF precursors for uh, non-manufacturing industries, for example, uh, natural gas extraction? Um, well, you know, there's some guidelines um, that, um, again, there's a lot of information online. I think you can uh, go, and, and, you know, there's different lists that people have put together of, of precursors. I think, you know, look at, you know, you can look at the list that I provided, but um, um, you, you know, there are, there are other, there, there's, there's been several papers issued, you know, that have been, uh, um, uh, published in, in professional safety. You can, uh, look at those and say, you, you know, um, not, not everybody's risks are, uh, you know, going to apply to every type of organization, but I think a lot of them, if you go back to the, to the, to the list that, um, uh, that I showed earlier, I don't want to take a lot of time in in getting there, um, but let's see, I think uh, this it here. Um, yeah, here, here's you know an uh, example of high consequence precursors. I, I think a lot of these apply to everybody. Um, uh, so um, you know any type of non routine activity during periods of change. Um, I think this list for the most part is going to apply to, to most people. So um, I, I think this would be a good start, but, um, you know, I suspect that within different industry sectors, some of your uh, uh, benchmarking meetings, uh, I suspect that different groups or uh, different organizations are developing uh, uh, their SIF control plans. So uh, I think uh, that would be also another good source of information. Our next question, what is meant by, quote, unquote, upset conditions on your uh, checklist? Um, well, that, you know, again, that's probably going to be industry uh, specific. But, uh, you know, in the chemical uh, process, if you, know, if you overfill a vessel, if the vessel overheats, uh, if there's a plug in the line, I mean, something that's out of the ordinary. Um, you know, there's a lot of thinking that, you know, that during normal production operations, uh, the risks of somebody being injured uh, while things are running smoothly are, are far less than when something changes. And uh, that would, you know, the, the, the definition of the change, something unexpected occurring um, starts raising the, the probability, not the severity necessarily, the severity probably going to be the same but raises the probability of, you know, the, uh, the event occurring. Next question, how do you incorporate the risks versus probability when, when you're looking at severity? 
Um, well, let me let me start with the definition of that. I may have to circle back and ask you to say that question again. Um, most the, the most common definition of risk is um, severity times probability. So um, uh, the, the level of risk of a, of a particular exposure or a particular operation um, is uh, how likely is it that will occur, probability, and, and what, how, how, what is the severity, uh, the worst thing that could happen? So that's the definition of risk. It's the product of those two. So would you read that question again for me, uh, Alan, please? Uh, it's how do you incorporate the risk versus probability when, when you're looking at severity? Okay. Well, again, I mean, it's, it's those three are the, are, the, are the key elements. And if you, if you um, um, generally, you, you know the severity. Most of us can, can say, what's the worst thing that can happen? Um, the probability is, is, frankly, is where the difficulty is. And, and there are ways to estimate probability, but you know they're not nearly as um, uh, easy. And and you know you can look at you know benchmarking data. You look at um, uh, insurance experience. My insurance friends tell me that they've got enough data to uh, estimate probability. Um, I, I don't. I still don't think that it's as accurate a measure as you could you know with respect to, to severity. But you you can determine. You know what? What are steps that you can take to reduce either the probability of the, the SIF event occurring, or uh, what steps can you take to reduce the severity? If 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 the event occurs, how do you reduce the severity? Uh, and in most cases, it's both. So risk says you know we understand you know some sense of probability, we understand some sense of severity. Um, and that gives us some measure of risk, however you want to measure it. You know, if you want to use some of the, the, the tables that are out there, you can get a semi-quantitative uh, assessment of what risk might be. But, but ultimately, you have to make the determination, is, is that an acceptable risk or not? And I think, again, what we know about SIFs and taking on the advice of people like Krauss that says, you know, be warned that in general, because of cognitive biases, because of, you know, we've always done it this way, nothing's ever happened, uh, all of those, those um, uh, you know, ways we assess probability, um, we tend to uh, underestimate what that probability is. So, you know, we should be very careful in, in assessing what we think probability is. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, again, Look for, uh, you know, look for controls that can um, can reduce the probability even further. Even event you say, oh, I don't think that could ever happen. You say, well, you know, what are the ways that it could happen, and and then look at at taking steps to reduce those. Sir, our next question: How do we open our eyes to SIFs we don't even recognize? It's, he says, my uh, facility, I would have. Uh, listed me this at my facility. It would have listed me the same things you mentioned: you know, maintenance works, falls, etc. Instead, I had a worker. He had a worker walk across the parking lot and get backed over by a semi. He said, "Then my eyes were open to pedestrian events." Is there a good resource or for or a way of generating ideas to look at SIS? Uh it's a great question. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a big believer. In, in risk assessments, um, and you know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of different you know if you if you Google you know workplace risk assessment, there's charts and you know, there's there's a ton of different you know models that are offered. Um, in my experience, is is you know I mean they're they're good. I mean you know, sometimes you have to do formal risk assessments. Some, sometimes there's regulatory requirements. I, I've always found you know putting putting a a bunch of people around the table, you know, you, you're looking at a new operation or you're looking at, you know, what are some of the biggest risks in our organization? Um, putting key people around the table, which, by the way, and this is important, includes workers, includes the people that are actually doing the work. 
um, you know, they, they have a whole lot better sense. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an engineer. I've done a lot of, you know, you know, safety engineering design reviews. But, you know, at the end of the day, I'm looking at a set of prints inside a conference room. The person on the floor is the one that has the best feel for, you know, what, what are the risks? You know, what are they, you know, how are they doing their job? What changes are they making in, in how they do their job? Because I've given them a bad design. Um, you know, so uh, I, I think the biggest uh, advantage of a risk assessment is getting key people in the room uh, and say, what could go wrong here? You know, what, what could go wrong with this particular operation? Uh, let me give another anecdote. Um, I, I have a, a good ASSP friend um, who, um, uh, in their organization, every year um, they, they have a process that uh, they uh, they meet with their senior management and present to them their assessment of the top five risks in their organization. Now, you'll always have five. You always have a top five. Now, it may be that all five are pretty low, but you've done a good job of reducing those risks, but there will always be the top five risks, whatever they are. And so that's the way that uh, that company forces itself to um, – to, to go through a process to uh, assess, uh, you know, what are the risks? Where where can people get hurt in our organization uh, to, to the point of the getting hit in the parking lot? Um, I used to work my last 20 years of my career. I worked in the pharmaceutical industry, and you know, we're essentially small chemical plants, and with really potent chemicals, extremely potent from a health hazard standpoint. And you know, we spend a lot of time on risk assessment, our operations, our laboratories, all kinds of you know, high toxic materials, I, I would always stress to management, the most serious job, and sorry, the, the highest risk job in, in our organization, both in the U.S. and worldwide, is being a sales rep. They're driving their cars around the street. Uh, we didn't have anybody that, my opinion, was at a, at a higher risk than, than people in suits uh, driving around, uh, you know, just being on the highway. So, um, you know, so, yeah, I think, I think, um, it's important to get a cross-functional group together and, and brainstorm and say, start with the question, what's the worst thing that could happen here? So our last question, uh, what is the corrective action when you, acti when you have activities on your checklist with uh, serious loss potential? Well, um, what you're trying to do is, um, you know, apply, you're trying to apply some level of control. How are we going to, you know, those precursors, uh, you know, ultimately relate to some type of risk. And so you're trying to reduce the risk that's associated with the precursors. Um, and, and essentially, you're applying, uh, you know, varying levels of control. And, you know, one level of control is, say, it's, it's a manual operation, or there's, an, there's a worker, employee in the middle of it. I mean, certainly, you know, I didn't want to, I hope I didn't you know, transmit, you know, that, that training is not important, that procedures aren't important, that, that inspections aren't, aren't important. They are, absolutely. But, you know, they, there's a certain, because they're done by people, uh, there's always a certain level of, of reliability that, you know, that you know, you're not getting because people make mistakes. And so, um, you know, again, uh, you know, going back to your, to your question, how, how do we, you know, what do we do with these precursors once we identify to say, how could they, re how could these precursors uh, lead to, we, we know these precursors can lead to SIFs. We know that, you know, the, there's, there's plenty of data to say all the precursors I've showed you, the, the precursors are up on the screen. There's, you know, many cases, uh, each one of those where we come up with an example of how they led to a serious injury or fatality. So the question you have to say is, what can happen in, in my organization? And uh, what do I need to do? You know, what type of controls do I need to apply to ensure that, you know, doesn't lead, you know, that for me to lower the probability of both, lower the probability of it occurring and the severity in the event that it does occur. All right, thank you, everyone. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. I'm sorry we didn't get to everyone's questions, but all of today's unanswered questions will be forwarded to our speaker. Once again, I hope you take the time to fill out our evaluation survey to give us your feedback. That ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank, I'd like to thank Tom Sisich, everyone at Aveta, and, of course, all of our listeners. Have a safe day.